Hi, my name is Kelsey. I'm one of the ministers here. This morning we are reading from Matthew 26. It's on page 996 on the Bible, in the Bibles in front of you. Starting at verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but you as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Morning, everyone. Let me just get myself organized. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you we can be here today. And as we come into this holy week that we set aside to reflect on the profound, wonderful, life-changing events of Easter, Lord, speak to us this morning as we look at this incredible episode of Jesus' ministry the night before he died. And Father, fill our hearts with thanks and thanksgiving, but also just a great conviction about the need to share the wonderful news about our Saviour, Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I've called this morning's message The Dark Garden. And we come to a passage of Scripture which, um, in many ways, is very well known. And in fact, if you just stand up, I just want everyone to stand up, turn around, and if you have a look, I only saw this this morning, uh, the stained glass window over the back door is actually what I'm preaching on. So if you've ever wondered about that, uh, that was put together to commemorate Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You you can all sit down now and face the front. Um, (laughs) One of the eight o'clockers came up to me this morning and said, oh, you know, that's what that stained glass window, I thought... I've seen it so many times that I had not connected the dots. Been here ten and a half years. And so you can see the significance of uh, this passage we're looking at. We've even got a stained glass window dedicated to it here. And it's just 11 verses. And I've called it the dark garden because there's a great sense of darkness about this passage that we're looking at tonight, uh, this morning. And it's very well known, the story of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's hours before his betrayal. Uh, The passage finishes with his betrayer Judas basically on his way to organise the arrest of Jesus 
His trial will play out through the hours of the night and into the next day. He'll be ridiculed, mocked, before within 24 hours being crucified on a Roman cross. And as we come today, what I want us to do is not just understand this passage, I want us to feel it. Uh, There's a great power to what we read here this morning. And there's a number of things I want us to observe as we go through. Um, Firstly, the hour of decision, secondly, the cup of wrath, and thirdly, the resolute saviour that we are confronted with. But firstly, the hour of decision. Uh, All of us have got decisions all through life we have to make. Uh, It's just part of life. You get up in the morning and you've got decision after decision after decision. Now, for all of us, there's going to be a number, a handful of decisions that have great significance. You know, who you marry, very significant uh, decision you have to make. Uh, I never forget being in the birthing class for our first child and there was this Irish lady uh, with her partner, husband, and uh, it was quite funny because they showed this video of what childbirth was really like and she wanted to put the baby back. (laughs) And she was hilarious. But it's like, no, no, it's too late. (laughs) I think you've already made that decision and you've taken actions and it's coming. I know for many parents, uh, they often wonder when their first child comes and there's just sleepless nights, you think, oh, do I really have this for the rest of my life? Well, you've got it for quite a few years. Um, But occasionally, and for a very select few, there are decisions that not just affect them, but they actually affect multitudes of people, thousands, millions. August 1945, Japan had lost World War II. Japan and the United States both knew it. How long would it be, however, before Japan surrendered? Japan was split between surrender or fighting to the end. History reveals to us that they chose to fight to the end. In mid-July of that year, 1945, the then President of the United States, Harry S. Truman, was notified of the successful test of the atomic bomb what he called the most terrible bomb in the history of the world. Thousands of hours of research and development as well as billions of dollars had contributed to its production. This was no theoretical research project. It was created to destroy and kill on a mass scale. As a president, it was Harry Truman's decision if the weapon would be used with the goal to end the war. And he said, it is an awful responsibility that has come to us, the president wrote. Now, imagine being faced with that decision. I don't think there's been a decision as significant for the human race in the last hundred years as the one he was confronted by. History tells us that the outcome of the president and his decision was that on August the 5th or 6th, 1945, the American bomber Enola Gray dropped the first of two bombs a five-ton bomb over the Japanese city of Hiroshima in order to bring the war to a swift end. Now, the world has never been the same since, has it? Those two bombs changed warfare. There can be no arguments that the decision to create and use those bombs have caused a wave of consequences that we feel even to this day as we worry, will another person make that decision on behalf of some country. Will we have nuclear warfare again? And I want to say, 
As Jesus comes to the night before his death, he's confronted by one decision which actually has even greater consequences than the one that Harry Truman was faced with back in 1945. And he comes to the Garden of Gethsemane to really grapple with the decision that's before him and to pray and to seek the Father. And the outcome of that decision will not just affect, if I can say, the human race in that generation and for numbers of generations to come. It would infect the entire human race, depending on what outcome came of the decision. And the decision he was faced with was this. Would he go and face God's wrath and hell in order to bring salvation to the world? Or would he walk away? Let's have a look at the narrative and see what happens. Uh, We're at Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 to 46. You can also read the accounts in Mark and Luke's gospel. Uh, John doesn't refer to it in any detail. He just refers to them having been there. And I'll pick up from Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 on page 996. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane comes from uh, the language, it means uh, an olive press. And it really is the place where Jesus was crushed in his soul. And he said to them, sit here while I go over and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now Gethsemane is a well-known name uh, and place for this Arab decision. Here's a modern day picture. You can go there today. Um, It is an olive grove and it's part of an estate at the foot of the Mount of Olives and it overlooks the city of Jerusalem. And in the week leading up to his death, the week preceding Easter, Jesus basically went in and out of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, often stayed at Bethany where he had friends and was well looked after but on this night, the night before he's about to die, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, the Olive Press. And he takes with him his three closest disciples, Peter, James and John. On this night of spiritual trial, he wanted them there and he instructs them to keep watch and pray. They're the actual words uh, written on the window up the back. Now what's striking is the description here by Matthew. He is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. There is this deep sense of anguish and grief that overwhelms him. And you have to ask the question, why is this the case? He's known all along that he's going to go and die. On many occasions he told the disciples that he would face death. Matthew 16 is a classic one. The revelation of his identity as the Messiah by Peter at Caesarea Philippi is finished with this statement. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. There was a real sense of resoluteness about Jesus. He he set his face to Jerusalem and he knew his ministry would conclude there with his death and then resurrection. But why is he so overwhelmed? We've got to ask the question. Many Christians have faced death in the name of Christ and not been in the state that Jesus is in. 
Throughout the history of the church, millions have been killed for their faith. In the past year, 2018, 4,136 Christians were killed for their faith. Uh, It's approximately 11 Christians a day are being killed for their faith in Christ in some part of the world. In the last year, 1,266 church buildings were attacked in some way, shape or form. Uh, You can go on the web to Open Door Ministry, which tracks, records and seeks to work and encourage those in positions of great hardship in the world and opposition. Two of the martyrs that I've read about have struck me always. Um, I've read the story of the Christian church in Cambodia. Uh, There's a very moving book called The Killing Fields written by a missionary who went there and it recounts the story of the church from its very beginning but in particular it focuses on the Pol Pot regime and one of the most moving stories I'll never forget is reading about a family who'd been rounded up by the Khmer Rouge and they're about to be executed and the son has run away and the father calls out to the son and pleads with him to come back and die because they very shortly will be with the Lord Jesus in heaven. And this son comes out of the bushes and kneels with his family before he's shot. Uh, If you go to Oxford in England, you can find this plaque. It's on the road called the Broad Street. It's in the centre of the town. And you'll just see this basically mosaic cross in the road. Now on the wall there's a plaque that explains it. It is the place where two bishops of the Church of England of the day, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, were burnt at the stake. And as the flames rose higher, burning the two bishops, Ridley struggled with what would have been intense pain. Hugh Latimer, seeing his brother in Christ struggling in pain, called out these famous and what became prophetic words, Play the man, Master Risley, we shall this day light a candle by God's grace in England as I shall never be put out. And they were prophetically true. The gospel has never been put out in England to this day and so you have to ask the question why is Jesus so sorrowful so overwhelmed so troubled was he a wimp when it came to his own death unlike the other martyrs who have faced their impending death with incredible stoicism and bravery We can only understand the depth of his fear and sorrow when you understand what is the cup of wrath. Verse 39, going a little further, he fell to his face and to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You can't understand what's going on in this story until you understand about the cup that Jesus here refers to. In Luke's Gospel, what we have um, is another description of what took place that night. Let me read to you from Luke's account of the Garden of Gethsemane. He adds an extra detail that says, An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed even more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And what Luke is appearing to describe here is a rare medical condition that, forgive me for the medical people here, is called uh, hematidrosis. And from my limited reading, I'm not a doctor, 
Uh, hematidrosis remains a mysterious, if I can say, condition due to its rare occurrence. It's so rare, in fact, that studies usually focus on single people. I actually saw a photo of a girl who had um, experienced this. Now, what's to note of importance here is what causes it that you would sweat blood is that you're under incredible stress or shock. Uh, your, your whole body is kind of in this state of shock such that you just start sweating blood. And why is it that Jesus is in this state of complete shock such that he's sweating blood? Well, in verse 39, he prays, My father, if it's at all possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now, in the ancient world, people spoke of drinking the cup in two ways. It could be a cup of blessing or a cup of death and wrath. I don't know if you know this, but the great Greek philosopher Socrates, based in Athens, his famous student was Plato. He was executed by the state for sedition. Did not believe in democracy. They had him on trial. Three hours, the case against him, three hours his defence, found guilty, I think, 280 to 202 was the jury vote. Big juries back then. Do you know what they did to execute him? They made him drink a cup of poison. Let me read to you Psalm 23, one of the most favourite parts of Scripture for all Christians. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Beautiful picture of blessing, of abundance, of being in God's favour. But let me also read to you from Isaiah 51. Awake, awake, the prophet says. Rise up, Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. Jesus was splitting blood because he knew that he wasn't just going to die. He was about to face hell and the wrath of God. As we come into the Easter week, this is what we're remembering. It's a very sobering truth. He was about to be shut out from the presence of his heavenly father and experience the reality and the destruction of hell. There's a famous sermon by the great American preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards on this passage, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let me read one small section. The agony was caused by a vivid, bright, full, immediate view of the wrath of God. The Father, as it were, set the cup before him. He now had a near view of that furnace into which he was about to be cast. He stood and viewed its raging flames and the glowing of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. Let me get us to stop and think about something that is entirely uncomfortable. And I'm sure no one turned up here today thinking or wishing that I would talk about. It's the reality of hell. And I raise this because this is exactly what Jesus was confronted by as he prayed in the garden on the night before his death on the cross. 
You see, only this makes sense of the reality that he was so traumatised that he began to sweat his own blood. And there's no doubt that to talk of the reality and existence of hell is is at best unpopular in today's cultural climate. At worst, it's seen as a belief held by religious extremists who are simpletons when it comes to matters of faith and belief. Uh, To talk this way is completely outdated and to do so is to try and scare or manipulate people into following God. As a result, not only is it not talked about with any seriousness in our society, in fact, when it's raised, and I wasn't going to mention uh, the Israel Folau issue today, it's too complex to deal with, but one editorial opinion piece I did read just made complete might light and mocked the whole concept of hell. But not just that, it's rarely reflected upon in churches with some Christians having removed it entirely from their belief system because they find it so offensive to believe that a loving God would send people to hell. And they will say to people, well, God will save everyone. And this problem stems from the fact that in our culture today, we think we're all basically good. And really, no one is that bad they deserve to go to hell for eternity. And I hear that sentiment often. We have lost completely the sense of the holiness and the majesty and the awe of God who one day we will stand before in judgment. And sin convinces us that we'd be happier if we were away from God. Yet the reality is we need God to exist and live and the Bible teaches we've all fallen short of God's glory and deserve his punishment. We were made for his presence and for a relationship with him like a flower needs the sun, so we need God. But we push him away. And the ultimate punishment is God saying this, well, if you push me away, well, you can have that forever. That is the reality. And people think, well, hell will be a party. No, it won't be a party. You think of everything that is good in this world. Everything. Love, life, relationships, family, forgiveness, joy, all of it comes from God. In a way we just do not even realise, in a way our society completely rejects. And remove all of that from existence and you'll have hell. It will be a place of darkness, of regret, of punishment. The images in Scripture speak of fire and flames. What it actually is, we don't know, but if I can say in the exact way, what we do know is this, it will be awful. And I was reading this week one of the responses to Israel Folau, and he said, if Jesus were alive... He would surely preach love and forgiveness above all dogma. In other words, he wouldn't talk about hell. Well, Jesus did say lots of very heartwarming things. To the person who is searching, he says, absolutely, come. 
Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. John 4, 14. To the person who is burdened, he says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Matthew 11, verse 28. To the person who is seeking assurance about the afterlife, he says, very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I read those words with a dying lady this week and gave her communion with, his son, with her son. And in a beautiful moment, a couple of days later, when asked at the hospital what her religion was, she said, my religion is trusting Jesus. She was ready to go home. To the person who is lost, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But Jesus also spoke more about hell than any other person in the entire Bible. And I take it because he, more than anyone, knew about its reality. In Matthew eleven twenty three, he says, hell is the opposite of heaven. In Matthew 8, 12, and in Luke 13, verse 28, he warns there'll be religious people who'll be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that description depicts people who are just filled with regret for the decisions they made in regard to God. How can we be so stupid? In Matthew 10, verse 28, we are to be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body, is what Jesus said, in hell. In Luke 16, he told a story about a greedy rich man who died and ended up in hell, a place of torment. In one of his most striking phrases, he says in Mark 9:43 that hell is a place to avoid at all costs. And so as Jesus comes into the garden on the night before he's about to die... This is what one commentator wrote about his time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found heaven rather than, sorry, he found hell rather than heaven opened before him, and he staggered. The Father reveals to him what is before him, not just death, not just crucifixion, but separation from the Father and the immediate prospect of facing his wrath. You see, this is the only way to explain Jesus' reaction of complete shock and horror, such that he is sweating blood. He knows where he's about to go. Which leads me to the third point the resolute saviour. Verse 40, we read on, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. 
Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. In his hour of greatest need, where he wanted his closest friends with him, praying for him, all they could do was fall asleep. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. And what will Jesus decide? Jonathan Edwards postulates that one of the reasons that he went to the garden and experienced what he experienced was so that when he went to the cross, it was his decision, freely made. In John's Gospel, just a few hours earlier, he had said this, John 15, greater love has no one than this, that he lays down one's life for one's friends. And on numerous occasions, he has said he will do this. And now he is confronted by the decision, will he go through with it? And the Father has revealed to him what, in fact, is about to take place. And so the single decision he's confronted with is, would he face the Father's wrath? Would he face hell for those he came to save? And thankfully, the answer was yes. In spite of who we are, in spite of how we treat God, in spite of how we treat each other, in spite of the fact that we fall way short of the glory of God, Jesus came and died in our place and faced the Father's wrath. Because in the garden, having been confronted by what was ahead, he simply prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And he went forth to face his accusers. What do we learn from this powerful episode in Jesus' life the night before he died? Well, let me ask you a question. Who do you think we're meant to identify with in this story? Is it Jesus or is it the disciples? Now let me say, for Christians, there's a great temptation to want to identify and learn from Jesus. And there's some wonderful things to learn here. There's no doubt we see this incredible model for obedience. That even at the greatest cost, he honours his Father with obedience. There's no doubt there's much to teach us about prayer. There's this incredible raw honesty that you see the Son bringing before the Father. Lord, is there any other way? Which should encourage us to bring our prayers and our cries and our despairs before them, as raw as they may be. But yet believing that whatever the answer is, God's way is the best way. Your will be done. There's an incredible model for forgiveness. The disciples absolutely let him down in his greatest hour of need. And he resolutely went off and died for them and prayed, Father, forgive them. But at the heart of this story is not an example to follow. It's a saviour to trust him. You see, I think we're meant to identify with the disciples who fell asleep. That's who we would be if we were there. And let me take you back to another garden. 
with another man who was confronted by a decision that would affect the entire world. It's the Garden of Eden. And there's Adam. And he's been instructed to follow God. And what did Adam do? He failed. Miserably. And that decision affected everyone subsequently through the entire history of the world. And for that impact to be overturned, that decision to be reversed, it required another man who comes to the garden. And where Adam failed, where we failed, Jesus triumphed. You see, at the heart of the message of the gospel is that we are weak, we are wayward, we are rebellious, we don't want God. Yet God wants us. And Jesus loves us so much that he willingly chose to face the Father's wrath so that we don't have to. And you see, this is the heart of the message of the gospel. That we have a saviour who has triumphed for us and he has borne the Father's wrath in our place so that we don't have to. And I just want to encourage you as I finish up to say follow him, trust in him, obey him and make him known. And as we come to Easter, let me encourage you not just to come and celebrate but bring someone with you who does not know the wonder and the joy and the privilege of being saved through Christ by his death and resurrection. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible story etched in history. And we thank you Jesus chose that day to face the Father's wrath in our place. May we follow him, trust him, obey him, and make him known. Amen.